Hey y'all. So when it comes to bodies, weight loss is not really something that I'm pursuing right now. But as you know, one of Vanessa's family members has been taking a GLP-1 medication and it's worked really well for him. So if that is part of your journey, you should check out the Roe Body Program. Roe provides access to the most popular weight loss shots on the market. Roe's partner handles all the insurance paperwork to help get the medication covered. If eligible for medication, patients have access to their provider on demand for any questions. Go to ro.co slash infamous. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. That's ro.co slash infamous. Campsite Media. In the Venn diagram of American politics, there is one tiny sliver of consensus that everybody from your mechanic to your yoga teacher can agree on. The Iraq War was a mistake, and it was based on a lie. Us rushing headlong into a war unilaterally uh, was a mistake and may still be a mistake. Obviously, the war in Iraq was a big, fat mistake, all right? You call it whatever you want. I want to tell you, they lied. For this episode, we're going to focus on exactly how all this happened and the connection to one particular reporter who just happens to be my co-host, Gabriel Sherman. Hi, Gabe. Hey, Vanessa. Excited to be here. I'm excited you're here, too. So, Gabe, take it away. Okay. This story starts on an important day, one that commemorates a day that lives in infamy in this country and around the world. The first anniversary of 9-11. This Sunday, September 11th, one year later. The fate of On this day, the morning talk shows were booked up with President George W. Bush's administration. And the most powerful of them... Mr. Vice President, welcome back to Meet the Press. Morning, Tim. Dick Cheney. Uh, the world before 9-11 looks different than the world after 9-11, especially in terms of how we think about national security and what's needed to defend America. Now, Dick Cheney wasn't just there to talk about the aftermath of the attacks. He had something else on the agenda. With Saddam Hussein, if you look at the extent to which he has aggressively sought to acquire chemical, biological, and nuclear weapons over the years, the fact that he has previously used them, there's a, a pattern and a track record there that one has to be concerned about. To make his point even stronger, Dick Cheney brought along some ammunition. There's a story in the New York Times this morning uh, that I want to talk about, obviously, uh, specific intelligence sources. But he now is trying to acquire the uh, equipment he needs to be able to enrich uranium. Aluminum tubes. Specifically aluminum tubes, which is what you have to have in order to build a bomb. The New York Times story said, quote, Mr. Hussein's dogged insistence on pursuing his nuclear ambitions had brought the United States and Iraq to the brink of war. And Dick Cheney wasn't the only one beating the war drums. The president has said, the one choice we don't have is to do nothing. We don't want the smoking gun to be a mushroom cloud. The New York Times story they all referenced was co-written by a reporter named Judith Miller. She was a journalistic star. In this article, about aluminum tubes and Saddam Hussein's intentions would be the definitive story of her entire career. Because, well, the story was total bullshit. 
and it helped make the case for one of the most destructive wars in American history. Do you feel guilty? Um, no, I don't feel guilty. I feel that as a reporter, I did the very best job I could. From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Infamous. I'm Gabriel Sherman, and this is the first episode of a three-part series, Little Miss Runamuck. To journalists like me, who grew up in liberal households on the East Coast, the New York Times is the church. It's the most important news-gathering institution in our country, one that has been riding high in recent years. But this is the story of one reporter at that paper, Judy Miller, and what it means to get too close to power. Whenever I look at a picture of Judy Miller, I always think she really looks like this sort of paragon ideal of female boomer-era journalist. Like Leslie Stahl, she has this very clean-cut look with a very good short-ish haircut, often photographed with her arms crossed to imply a sense of stolidness or resolve. And yet, if there's a poster child for the Iraq War era in American journalism, for all the mistakes we made and the lies we fell for, it has to be Judy Miller. The stories she wrote seemed to have taken leadership at the White House, Pentagon, and CIA at their word, gave them cover for a war they'd been pursuing for decades, helped shore up support among the American public for the invasion. Even though eventually, Judy Miller's reporting was publicly discredited and disowned by the Times. Now, Gabe is going to tell us this story because it was actually one of his first stories. So I was working at the New York Observer at the time. So how old were you? I was, um, let's see, 25. Mm -hmm. um, so I was in my early 20s and I was reporting on the media beat, which at the Observer was like the, the crown beat. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it was really like one of my first real journalism jobs. And so um, I just, you know, I was like a pig and shit. I, I mean, I just loved it. I lived and breathed that beat. I'd been on the beat, I think, for about a year when the Judith Miller scandal broke. This was, I think it's like 04, 05. The Iraq war was going down the tubes. It was really clear, obviously, that there were no weapons of mass destruction. And the entire country was like, what the fuck? Like, <laughs> the New York Times told us that there would be the weapons there. How did the New York Times publish all these stories by Judith Miller that made the case for war that ended up being wrong? This wasn't just like an inside baseball story about media gossip in Manhattan. Like I, it was the first time in my journalism career where I realized like the stakes were war and peace. I mean, there was just giant stakes to, to the story and I'd just been desperate to tell her side of it. So I just, just kept calling her and calling her and emailing. And that's like, when I, when I, when I meet people who ask like what journalism is, I try to dispel the myth that it's glamorous. It's really like fucking telemarketing. You are just calling people in the hopes that they will, they, have, they don't have to talk to you. We're not cops. We don't have subpoena power. So the only thing we have is just like our persistence. More after the break. 
I've always struggled with finding time to manage my finances. At the end of a busy week, the last thing I want to do is spend time budgeting all of my expenses or tracking down customer service teams to cancel old subscriptions I no longer use. But now I use Rocket Money and it does all that for me. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. With Rocket Money, I have full control over my subscriptions and a clear view of my expenses. I can see all my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, Rocket Money can help me cancel it with just a few taps. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com infamous. That's rocketmoney.com infamous. rocketmoney.com infamous. Back in the 90s, Pepsi and Coca-Cola were in a heated race to try and win loyal customers by any means necessary. But when Pepsi launched an ambitious promotion that encouraged people to buy Pepsi and redeem points for prizes, they overlooked their own fine print in a major way. On each episode of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop, comedians join host Misha Brown to chronicle one of the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question. Who thought this was a good idea? Like, who at Pepsi thought it would be a good idea to advertise that people could earn enough points to redeem a military jet as a prize? When they launched their Pepsi points system, they never imagined somebody might actually try to snag it. But a 23-year-old did, and suddenly, Pepsi owed him a jet. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. You're listening to Infamous from Campside Media. So this story really begins in 2001 at the New York Times building in Midtown Manhattan. The Times was undergoing a massive transformation. They just hired a new executive editor who had a totally new outlook on the paper's future. His name was Howell Raines. Yeah, so Howell Raines was, um, he became the executive editor of the Times in September 2001. (laughs) He had not come from the sort of traditional news hierarchy of the Times and was viewed, I think, skeptically is probably a nice way of putting it. That's Seth Mnookin, an old friend of mine who's reported on the inner workings of the New York Times since 2002. He wrote a book called Hard News. Howell was someone who was flashier, who had been on the editorial side, who had written for the magazine. He wanted it to become essentially sexier. One of his favorite terms was flooding the zone, that when there was a big story, he wanted to own it by just throwing tons of resources at it. His sort of underlying belief was that the Times should essentially be leading on all stories all the time. And that meant both, you know, having a society section coverage and having arts coverage that was going to be better than publications that covered the arts full time, but also for every aspect of political life, every aspect of foreign policy. He wanted to own those stories. 9 11 was sort of the perfect 
story for that approach. Apparently, a plane has crashed into the World Trade Center in New York. Apparently, we have very little information available. We are, uh, we have that morning, Jill Abramson was right watching now, the TV sir. while jogging so on the treadmill at the gym. She was the bureau chief of the New York Times office in Washington, D.C. And at first, she didn't think much of the plane crash. And at that point, it seemed like just a bizarre crash. And what went through my mind, I'm ashamed to say, was, well, okay, th- this looks like a serious thing, but but it's a metro story. I'm not, mm-hmm. I'm not gonna have to be responsible for the coverage. Even though Jill was living in D.C. at the time, she was a true New Yorker at heart. If her old-school Manhattan accent wasn't enough to convince you, she's also got a tattoo of a subway token on her arm. And then the second plane hit, and in my sweaty workout clothes, I raced back to the bureau. And I got there just as... Uh, the third plane was hitting the Pentagon. And it certainly was my story. 9-11 was about to change her career forever. It would be the biggest story she'd ever managed. The executive editor had put 350 reporters and photographers on the story. By the end of the day, Jill's bureau had filed close to 30 stories, twice their usual output. It was after 3 a.m. when she finally left the newsroom. To get home from the Bureau, I had to pass the burning Pentagon, and it was still on fire, a sight I'll never forget. When I got off of the highway and turned into the streets leading up to our house in Arlington, I could see every house had an American flag. And when I drove into our driveway, I saw that my husband, you know, a a big, like, pro-union liberal, he had taken out, like, this absurdly large Fourth of July flag we have, and he had put it in front of our house. And it was only at that moment that I let kind of the impact of what had happened become personal to me, and I sat in my car and wept. That was kind of the way everyone, including, you know, most reporters, felt. Many people felt the need to be patriotic and wanted to show unity and pride in the country and confidence that we could not be defeated by terrorists. This was a generation of reporters that had not had a defining conflict to cover. You know, there had not been a Vietnam for people who were 30 or 40 years old in the early 2000s. At the same time, you had you know, the, the attacks in 9-11 were literally the Wall Street Journal had to evacuate their building. You know, they later had one of their reporters was beheaded. So there was this just incredibly unique combination of trauma, excitement, a sense of duty and responsibility to cover a story. And in retrospect, I think a lot of people would say that early on, they might have been too credulous. 
The Bush administration has labeled bin Laden's al-Qaeda network as the prime suspect in the September 11th attacks. They've also charged... 9-11 would dominate the headlines for months. Every news institution in the country was putting its resources on the story. And Howell Raines wanted the Times to come out on top. And Howell called me up the day after 9-11 or the day after that. And he said to me, I'm sending Judy Miller down to Washington. If you could use only one word to describe Judy Miller, it would have to be ambitious. Her father ran a nightclub in New Jersey, but she got her master's from Princeton, reported for NPR, and traveled the world building up a network of highly placed sources. Nina Totenberg, one of her colleagues at NPR, remembers a party in the 70s when the King of Jordan caught a glimpse of Miller across the room and yelled, Judy! To which Judy responded, King! That introduction, followed by an embrace, makes it clear she knew how to play the game and make friends in high places. Her boyfriends included prominent New York Times reporters and Congressman Les Aspen, who went on to become Bill Clinton's first Secretary of Defense. Judy's ambition came hand-in-hand with her now-legendary sharp elbows. She reportedly once got temporarily banned by the Times DC car service for her rudeness and threw a fit over rearranged items on her desk. A lot of the reporters in the bureau didn't like her. Some said she was a bit of a know-it-all. And, you know, that she was high-handed. Unhappy things happened during her time in the job. Some of those bitter foes had apparently even floated rumors of her sex life to Spy Magazine. In the 80s, a gossip columnist from Spy Magazine poked fun at her, friskiness, and dubbed her, Judith, is that a banana in your pocket? Miller. I didn't really love Spy Magazine, (laughs) and I thought it was very, uh, sexist. Still, her reporting commanded respect. She'd been reporting on the threat of terrorism for years before it was a mainstream subject. For more on al-Qaeda and how it operates, we turn to Judith Miller, a New York Times correspondent who's covered the Middle East and written extensively on bin Laden and his network. We're talking about an organization uh, that, as Colin Powell described it, is more of a holding company for terror. And the name itself is reflective of its mission. The name al-Qaeda in Arabic means the base, and it is the platform or base from which Osama bin Laden and his affiliated terrorists hope to launch their worldwide jihad or holy war that is to turn all societies and states into places that are run in a, quote, Islamic way, that is, as they interpret uh, Islam. She had completed... One of the first series, I mean, a really deep dive into Osama bin Laden and the al-Qaeda network. So talk about someone who was well-positioned to cover 9-11, and it was Judy Miller. So when Howell Raines, the executive editor of The Times, called Jill Abramson to tell her that Judy was heading to Washington, D.C., the decision made sense but it came with a condition. He said, you know, I am giving her free range and I want you to because she has sources in Washington that none of the other reporters in Washington have. So I want her to have a passport 
to interview anyone she wants to, which meant, you know, she was being given carte blanche to do her own White House reporting, to do her own Pentagon reporting, to do her own State Department reporting. And I had, you know, excellent reporters assigned to those beats. And, you know, I I had qualms about the arrangement from the get-go. Jill wasn't the only one worried about how this would go. He wanted me to go to Washington to do whatever it takes to help keep us ahead on the story. What you're hearing is Judith Miller voicing the audio version of her autobiography. We reached out to her, but she declined to be interviewed. I was worried. I can just hear the wailing from the bureau. Here comes little Miss Runamuck, a phrase I coined in self-mocking jest. Others at the Times have differed on whether little Miss Runamuck was a joke or not. But the nickname meant one thing. Judith Miller can do whatever she wants. Media reporter Seth Manukin again. If you think about it, and even to refer to yourself jokingly in that way, as a reporter in a newsroom is kind of terrifying. Um, all the more so when you're dealing with literally stories of life and death, stories that uh, have a significant impact on foreign policy, stories that shape the country's views about military operations. That, that, that's, not, that's not a reputation that you want, and certainly not a reputation that you would want a reporter covering those issues to sort of embrace. Under Hal Raines' tenure as editor of The Times, a handful of reporters had been given this sort of carte blanche to report and file independently. Judith was one of those people. I really knew nothing about her. She became an object of curiosity for me. Despite her reservations, Jill agreed to Hal Raines' terms and kept an eye on Judith. Almost immediately, things went off the rails. Though it wasn't Judy's fault. The office was evacuated except for me, quarantined near my cubicle. I shall never forget the sight of those moon men in their tan head-to-toe biosuits and gas masks. More after the break. Anybody who has a sibling knows that sibling fights are unavoidable. But what if every fight you had was under a microscope? on a global scale. That's the reality for brothers Prince Harry and Prince William. They'd been each other's closest friends and allies since the death of their mother. But that all began to crack as they married and took wildly different approaches to their royal duties. Wandry's podcast, Disentel, is hosted by comedians Sidney Battle and Matt Belisai. Each episode unpacks one of pop culture's most iconic celebrity feuds and they recently took a deeper look into the real reason William versus Harry started. It's actually much bigger than these two brothers, stretching back into the history of the British monarchy. Did their feud start with the royal family's mistreatment of Meghan Markle? Or was it something that began much earlier? Follow Disentel on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. 
Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, nothing. No tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. This is Infamous from Campside Media. Now imagine it's 2001, just a few weeks after 9-11. You've shaken off the shock of the attacks and are trying to get your life back to something close to normal. You go back to work, sit down at your desk, and start checking on all the mail that's piled up in the meantime. You absentmindedly rip open an envelope with scratchy handwriting from someone you don't know. White powder spills out of the envelope and clouds around you. You have no idea what to make of it. You clean it up and move on with your day. But the next morning, you wake up and your lymph nodes are swollen. Your lungs feel squeezed and you're running a high fever. Deep within your nervous system, anthrax bacteria is replicating at a massive scale. And within a few days, your organs will shut down one by one. Your brain will hemorrhage and your chest cavity will pool with blood. You'll be dead within 72 hours, and doctors will have no idea why. This is what happened in October of 2001, when letters full of anthrax were delivered to several journalists and congressional aides across the country. It was a double whammy for a country still reeling from 9-11. Terrorism wasn't just something that targeted institutions and big cities anymore. Now, your mailbox was a potential target. The threat of WMDs was driven home in a way that footage of the falling towers couldn't. Judith Miller had been one of the few people in the country focused on the terrorist threat of bioweapons prior to 9-11. And on October 12th, she went from an expert on bioweapon attacks to the victim of one when she opened an envelope at her desk in the New York Times office and white powder spilled out over her desk. She was very knowledgeable about bio and chemical warfare, right up to 9-11. She had been working on germ warfare and had teamed up with two fantastic reporters in the investigative unit. They wrote a book called Germs that zoomed to the top of the bestseller list. Here's Judith Miller talking about her research at a conference in Colorado. Biological weapons are actually deadlier in some ways than nuclear weapons. They're easier to spread. They're cheaper to make. They can cause mega death. Well, I had no idea that three weeks from the fall of the towers, New York and Washington would be dealing with the first biological weapons attack in the United States. Miller had gone from being an expert on bioweapons attacks to the victim of one. She yelled for her colleagues to call security immediately. Public health and law enforcement officials who were sealing off the investigative unit with yellow crime scene tape and moving noiselessly through our normally bustling newsroom. Reporters' computers were still on, but the third floor was silent save for the ringing of unanswered phones. In the end... The powder in the letter was deemed to be a hoax, and there was no anthrax in the envelope. But the story made headlines anyways, and Judy 
was at the center. The New York Times headquarters building in Manhattan was closed off around noon after another suspicious package was received, addressed to Times reporter and editor Judith Miller. Miller is an expert on the Middle East and terrorism who recently wrote a book on bioterrorism. The press conference that was held by the FBI said that the letter, the letters to NBC and to the Times had come from the same place, St. Petersburg, Florida. The country was gripped with fear. People refused to open their mail. The Capitol building was evacuated, post offices were shuttered, and even letters to Santa were being screened for toxins. But the attack was a total mystery, and the FBI had no leads on who was behind it. In the absence of evidence, there was a lot of finger-pointing. There were two nations which had specialized in developing anthrax. One was the former Soviet Union, which had stockpiles of tons and tons of it. But the second country was the Middle Eastern country, Iraq, which also had some of the deadliest strains known to man. And I kept thinking, as someone who had lived through 9-11 and who had covered Saddam for all of these years and knew what he was capable of, that what we really had to fear was an attack like 9-11 that would be coupled with some of these weapons. The FBI investigation eventually revealed that the letters were an act of domestic terrorism and that the suspect was likely an American scientist. But the White House seized on the fear to highlight Iraq's past experimentation and use of biological weapons. Officials started raising the alarm, and Judy owned the beat. Well, Judy's most important sources were not really Bush White House officials. Her best sources were Iraqi defectors who claimed to have inside knowledge about Saddam Hussein's weapons of mass destruction program. And chief among them uh, was a man named Ahmed Chalabi. He presented himself as someone with very detailed knowledge about an active WMD program in Iraq. Ahmed Chalabi was the head of one of Iraq's biggest opposition parties. He'd been trying to oust Saddam Hussein for decades, and he now had the ear of the White House and intelligence agencies. He was foreign-educated, incredibly media-savvy, and would become one of Judith Miller's closest sources. The fact that he stood to benefit immensely from a potential war in Iraq didn't seem to raise red flags for Miller, who simply wanted to get as close to the story as possible. Chalabi introduced her to a man named Adnan Saeed al-Haidiri, an Iraqi defector who had fled Saddam's Iraq. They met in a hotel in Bangkok in December of 2001. His dark thinning hair was slicked back, and he smelled of aftershave. A tailored shirt embroidered with his initials did the best it could to hide his pudgy belly. He seemed nervous as he told Judith about the work he claimed to have done in Iraq. He claimed to have personally renovated secret facilities he was told were for biological, chemical, and nuclear weapons. He was careful to say that he had never seen such weapons at the 20 places he had visited or helped refurbish. Iraqi military officials had told him that the sites were intended to store such weapons. 
He could think of no alternative plausible reason why such rooms would need to be lined with lead-filled concrete and made waterproof. Saeed later talked about the sites in a documentary interview. Inside of these buildings, I did the finishing off that they needed for clean area, antibacteria, resistance to bacteria, and resistance for chemicals. This place is normal, not normal place. Not for normal chemicals. The exhausting is not normal. Saeed handed Judith a set of documents that she shared with a source who used to head up a weapons inspection panel for the United Nations. That source ran the documents by his people. The contracts and maps seemed authentic, they told me. It seemed solid. On December 20th, 2001, another breaking story from Judith ran with the headline, Iraqi tells of renovations at sites for chemical and nuclear arms. The story admitted that there were no means to independently verify Mr. Saeed's allegations. And that's what's strange about this story. Stories with unvetted information were not supposed to make it into the paper. But this one made it onto the front page. There was another caveat. Defectors aren't exactly reliable sources. Sometimes they provided invaluable information, while other times they embellished or outright fabricated their stories. Though Saeed actually hadn't laid eyes on any nuclear bomb or other weapons of mass destruction, the story made a stark claim. Quote, If verified, the allegations would provide ammunition to officials within the Bush administration who have been arguing that Mr. Hussein should be driven from power. Simply stated, there is no doubt that Saddam Hussein now has weapons of mass destruction. There is no doubt that he is amassing them to use against our friends, against our allies, and against us. Cheney offered no evidence for this whatsoever. Judith says her editor wanted a comprehensive report on why the Bush administration believed Saddam was hiding weapons of mass destruction. Rather than interrogate why these claims were made without any basis, Judith Miller went to work finding the evidence in question, filling in the blanks. She and her colleague Michael Gordon worked on the story together. Then Michael hit pay dirt. A trusted source let slip a reference to an order of aluminum tubes that the Iraqis planned to use to enrich uranium for nuclear bombs. Michael called the White House, which refused comment. He was slowly filling in details of the program, but we needed the White House to give us some reaction, if only a no comment. The clock was ticking. So Judith called Bush's senior advisor on proliferation, Robert Joseph, and bluffed. Michael and I were writing a front-page story about the tubes, whether or not the administration would discuss them. Joseph and his deputy met us on Friday morning at his office in the old executive office building and confirmed much of what Michael had unearthed. We suspected there was far more to the story, but this was the first time that any senior official had discussed any aspect of the tubes for publication. Two days later... The Times ran Judith and Michael Gordon's story on the aluminum tubes. Politicians flooded the morning news circuit to discuss it, and they used it as justification for war. Both Michael and I were uncomfortable with the administration's use of our story. But while neither of us had wanted our work to become fodder in a campaign to justify war, a lead article on the front page of the nation's most influential newspaper made that inevitable. 
But that hesitance was short-lived. Instead of walking the story back, Judy doubled down. She wanted to go to the front lines. She wanted to see the WMDs herself. That's next time on Infamous. We are changing the current threat level to magenta. There are also unknown unknowns, the ones we don't know we don't know. <laughs> she told me she was making, quote unquote, her own arrangements. A plagiarism scandal was about to break wide open. He clearly has much to hide. We should not have been as directly beholden to the military. We, we kind of became part of the war plan. Can I go back to Iraq now? Infamous is a production of Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment. It's created, executive produced, and hosted by Gabriel Sherman and me, Vanessa Gregoriadis. Shoshi Shmolovitz is our managing producer and editor. Lily Houston-Smith, Garrett Graham, and Grace Heerman are associate producers. Some of this reporting appeared in The Observer newspaper. This episode was written for audio by Heather Schroering and Rajiv Gola. It was sound designed by Alistair Sherman, mixed by David Devereaux, recorded by Ewan Leitremuen, and fact-checked by Alia Farouk Sheikh. Campside's executive producers are Josh Dean, Adam Hoff, Matt Scher, and myself. Thank you to Campside's operations team, Doug Slewin, Aaliyah Papes, and Destiny Dingle. If you're enjoying Infamous, please rate and review the show. It helps us more than you know. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.